You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Sometimes we think the preacher is preaching right at us. Other times we wonder if the message was meant for us. In today's message, the political pastor will make it clear if this parable is for you. Join us by reading Mark chapter 12 verses 1 through 12 as the pastor delivers the sermon. This parable is for you. So we're in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1 today. And, and we're going to look today at a very rare thing in the gospel of Mark. We're seeing a parable. Mark doesn't record a whole lot of those parables. There's, there are some, and we've looked at some of them already. But um, this is one that's included in multiple gospels, and Mark includes it here. And we talked about what a parable is. In, the root of that is the, the four letters P-A-R-A, para, meaning to be alongside. We think of things like parallel, right? Two, two things running alongside of each other. Or uh, maybe we think about a paralegal. It's one who comes alongside the lawyer to help them. Uh, the word parakletos in the Greek is the word representing the Holy Spirit as our comforter. And it means one who is called alongside to help. So in parallel or in step with, alongside to aid. And so when we have a parable in the scripture, it's a story that's being brought alongside to help us in some way. And so Christ gives us this parable that we'll see in Mark chapter 12 this morning. And it's an even more unique parable than just the fact that Mark records it and he doesn't record a lot of parables in his gospel. But it's also unique because in this instance, the intended audience for this parable, they actually understand that this was intended for them. And so we'll look at that this morning in Mark chapter 12. Look at verse number one. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the crowd, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands for him. Amen. 
Well, most of us remember probably at this point the background and what's taking place here. We're in that last week of Jesus' life. He's come to the area around Jerusalem. He's staying in Bethany. Each day he goes into Jerusalem and there he's been teaching and there are multiple people following him as he teaches. We've seen Jesus go in and view out the temple. We've seen him curse a fig tree. We've seen him cleanse the temple. But then we saw his authority last week being called into question. And he was asked by what authority he was doing these things. And it's in that context that Jesus gives this parable that we have read today. Now, Matthew's gospel reveals that this parable would have been sandwiched between two other parables that Jesus was using at that time. The first was the parable of two sons. The second was the parable of the wedding feast. But sandwiched between those was this parable of the vine growers, which Mark includes in his gospel. Now, the purpose of the majority of parables that Jesus used is not what you might think it would be. Oftentimes in a message, we'll use an illustration or we'll tell a story to try to help get a point across to our audience. The point is we want them to understand what we're talking about. So we might use an illustration of something physically that people can relate to. And we give that story and that that helps people. And we think of a, a parable maybe as being like that. But really, when Jesus used parables, he didn't always use it to help the people at the time. In fact, the majority of his parables weren't for that purpose. In Mark chapter 4, we've already studied this in verses 10 through 12. It says, when he was alone, his followers along with the 12 began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, everything comes in parables. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. And so the parables were intended for those who were not part of the kingdom, those who were outside of the kingdom, they would hear it, but they wouldn't really understand it. They would see it, but they really wouldn't perceive it. And that's what the majority of the parables were being used for. But here is a parable that's a little different. It's a little bit unique because this parable is being understood by its intended audience. Those who are on the outside, if you will, realize this is about them and this is for them. Now, who are these people that we're talking about? Well, remember, Jesus has just been challenged by who? The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Remember, he's cleansed the temple. He's been turning things upside down. He's teaching there as this unlicensed, self-appointed rabbi. And they ask him, by what authority did you do these things? And so this parable is directly reflective of those same people, of those chief priests, those scribes, and those elders. It's the religious leaders of Israel. And Jesus is speaking a story about them. It's a parable that was for them. You know, sometimes people wonder when we're preaching if uh, we intend that message for them. I want to ask you to raise your hand. But do you ever feel like that sometimes? You ever thought, well, maybe. Well, some of you are raising your hands anyway. You say, oh, he's talking about me. He's preaching to me. And sometimes you even get mad because you think, well, he was thinking about me all week. He was planning that sermon. He was just trying to blast me up there today. That's what his intent was. And sometimes we feel like maybe, well, that message must have been meant for me. But these religious leaders here, they knew for certain that what Jesus was saying was intended for them. And though they knew this, instead of repenting of their sin, 
They harden their hearts. They harden their hearts. So today I want to help you as we go through this passage to know if this parable is for you. And so let's look at this parable beginning in verse 1. Let's look at the story itself that Jesus tells. He says beginning in verse 1, that he began to speak to them in parables and here it was. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And as he goes on to tell the story, what happens? It comes the time of harvest and this owner of the vineyard sends his slaves, sends his servants to go check out the fruit, see what the produce is. And what happens? Well, when the first one gets there, they take him, they beat him, they send him away empty handed. In verse four, he sends another slave. What did they do? They wounded him in the head. They treated him shamefully. So verse five, he sends another and this one they kill. And so with many others, they, they beat some of them, they killed some. And, and this owner just kept sending more and more in his patience. And yet these vine growers kept rejecting. And so these vine growers, finally, we, we find in verse number six that the, uh, that the owner of the vineyard had one more person to send. And it was his beloved son. He sent him last of all saying, they'll respect him. But the vine growers said to one another in verse seven, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. That's the parable. That's the story that Jesus related to them. Now, look at these different people and pieces of this story, because we're going to talk about what the parable is, and we'll talk about what it means, and then we'll talk about who it's for. But what is this parable about? Well, it starts with this owner in verse number one. He's the person, he's a man who planted a vineyard. He's a person with means. He's a person who's the master. He's ruling over all of these things, and he is the property owner. He has established this vineyard. He is the one who is in charge. He's in control. Then we see that he planted a vineyard. Now, Jesus was completely uh, understanding of wine production during that day. Now, I know what happens now because of, I guess, some cultural thing or whatever. But we'll kick against this in every way and try to twist and distort and get away from wine everywhere in the scripture that we can. Some people will. I guess it's a cultural thing now. But understand, during that time, uh, they were making not just grape juice. They were making real wine. It's important to understand that. If you don't, you're not going to understand very much of scripture, to be honest with you. Wine was very common. It was, um, wine production was very familiar to Christ. He understood the process and what was involved. And it was such a part of Jewish culture at that time that God had given them strict prohibition on drunkenness. And it was a big deal for the Jews. This was a big thing. You were not to be drunk with wine. By the way, it's hard to get drunk on the grape juice. Did you know that? So there was a the reason why there was this prohibition against drunkenness, because wine was so prominent in that society. So this was a normal thing to produce. So this man 
plants a vineyard, we know what the purpose of this is for, to grow the grapes for the production of wine. In fact, we're given a description of it there in verse number one. He takes and puts a wall around it. Some translations say a hedge. It could have been a hedge of thorns. It could have been a stone wall. But some type of protective barrier is built around this vineyard to keep people and animals and other things that didn't belong there and thieves out. But not only that, he says he put a wall around it. He also dug a vat under the wine press. And so this is how this process would work at that time. Think about two different layers. On one layer, the grapes are placed and men would stomp around with their feet and crush the grapes and the juice would run out from that layer down to another layer into a vat where it was collected. And so this man obviously was creating this structure for the production of wine. So he plants the vineyard. He creates the um, the facilities that are needed from the wine press to the vat to also a tower. Now, a tower would have been built in a vineyard at that time, uh, not just for the aesthetic beauty that it would bring, and I'm sure it did, but it was very functional. They might store their tools in there. Uh, the workers might even live in there. But this was a place where someone could gain some height and look out over the vineyard and survey the vineyard and ensure that nothing was coming in and invading. Understand, this was a precious crop they were growing, so they were guarding against thieves and other people who had ill intent. And so a tower would have been built. This was very common at that time. So that's what the owner does. He plants the vineyard. He puts all the facilities in place. The production is up and ready to go. And we see in verse number three that he rents it out to the vine growers and he goes on a journey. In verse number two, it says, and at the harvest time, depending on your translation, it might say at the season. So, This could have been the time when the grapes were coming into production or it could have been the time in which the wine was uh, ready to be checked and tested and it come to fruition. But the produce of the land, the point of it is this, the produce of the land was at a point where it should be inspected and now it was time to reap the benefit. Now there was some payment to be made. There was um, some gain to be realized. When a person would plant a vineyard at this time, in about the fourth year after planting the vineyard, they would begin to see uh, real production. That fourth year would have been dedicated, all that production, to the Lord. In the fifth year, the owner of the vineyard would then begin to realize profit for himself and begin to see a gain on what he had put in place. So perhaps this is what the Lord has in mind, is that time of year, or perhaps it's that uh, the wine is now at a place where it is ready But regardless, the owner was ready to see a return on his investment. And so the vine growers had to pay up. So that's the owner. But let's look at the vine growers just a bit. Verse 1 references them. It said that this area was rented out to the vine growers. And then verse number 2, we're told that at harvest time, the owner sent a slave to the vine growers. So this was another key group in this parable. Now, these vine growers would have either been folks who had rented out this vineyard and therefore would have to pay a percentage or pay some type of fee to the owner, probably as a result of whatever they produced, or they could simply be hirelings, people he has hired to take care of the vineyard. But regardless, whenever you hire someone 
to take care of your stuff. Have you ever noticed no one else ever cares about your things the way you care about your things? Have you ever noticed that? You can put someone in charge who tries their best, maybe does their best, but they won't care for things exactly like you would care for things. And that's no doubt the case here with these vine growers. It's much like the hirelings that Jesus tells us about who are watching the sheep. And what happens when the enemy comes or when the wolves come? Man, the hirelings, they scatter. It's different from the one who owns, isn't it? And so the vine growers wouldn't care in the same way the owner would. And as a result, they end up becoming very greedy for themselves. They rejected the owner of the vineyard. It's obvious they rejected him because they rejected him by rejecting his servants. And ultimately they rejected him by rejecting his son. And verse number nine tells us what will happen to those vine growers. Look at what it says. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. Here's Jesus again being real calm, meek, loving, kind, right? (laughs) He tells what the owner of the vineyard is going to do. He's going to destroy the vine growers and he's going to give the vineyard to others. Ultimately, these vine growers who have been irresponsible in what they have done and have rejected the owner of the vineyard, the owner is going to have his day of wrath and these vine growers will lose out. But notice some of the people that the owner sent to these vine growers. Send his slaves or his servants. These were servants of who? Servants of the owner, right? Servants of the master. They were therefore his messenger, his representatives to the vine growers. They went with his authority, with his message representing him. And yet they were rejected. We saw in verse 3, some were beaten and sent away empty-handed. In verse 4, some were wounded in the head, treated shamefully. In verse 5, some were even killed. Notice the progression here. They just continue to get more and more violent, don't they? More and more rabid in their rejection and their hardness against the owner. And they continued, we saw in verse 5, in this same pattern. So what does the owner do? Though he has been patient, And sent many servants. He finally says, there's one person left. It's my son. And when the owner sends his son, he expects that the vine growers will respect him. Now, why would he think such a thing? Especially since they've already killed all of his or beat up or ran away all of his servants who have come to them. Why would they accept his son? When the son would come, the son represented the owner to a greater degree. It was the same as if the owner were there. It's the same as if his presence were there. So when the son came, it was just like the owner had showed up. Because ultimately, he was the owner. He was the heir to everything that he saw there. It would all belong to him. And so the son should have commanded a greater respect because ultimately, he was the owner. All of it belonged to him. But instead, he would be killed by those who wanted what belonged to him. What belonged to the son, the vine growers wanted for themselves. 
I'm hoping you can already begin to understand what the meaning of Jesus' parable was. So what was that meaning? Well, Jesus expounds a little bit and gives a little bit of an explanation in verses 10 and 11 that would help clarify. If there was any doubt, this would help them understand what his parable meant. Look at verse 10. Have you not even read this scripture? This is from Psalm 118, which we quoted earlier. The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. All right, let's walk through this just a little bit. You're probably already piecing this together, aren't you? Who is the owner in the story? The owner is God, right? God the Father, he is the owner. And he is patient in sending his messengers repeatedly to his people. He's sending them to Israel. Now notice the vineyard. Well, the vineyard represents here Israel. Or the church of the Old Testament, if you will. The people of God, the chosen people of God in that period of time. These are the people chosen by him. They belong to him. You see, the owner planted a vineyard. God had a people, didn't he? People of Israel. He A chosen people for himself. And what did they do? We read this this morning from Isaiah chapter 5. You can write it down or it's actually in your worship guides from our first reading today. But Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Jesus uses the same language from what we find in the prophet Isaiah chapter 5. There in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah the prophet tells us that God had planted a vineyard and he built the wine press and the vat and the tower, just like Jesus says, took place. There was no doubt to Christ hearers what's being referred to here. Jesus is referring to that Old Testament prophet Isaiah and his message about the people of Israel. He's talking about them. They said, wait a minute, he's talking about us here. <laughs> and so the vineyard was the church, was Israel. But what would happen to this vineyard? We saw it from Isaiah chapter 5. This vineyard would be destroyed. It would be destroyed. Why? Because it didn't produce like it was supposed to produce. God had done everything that he needed to do. Everything that was required for good fruit had been done, and yet there was no good fruit. All the resources were available, but there was no evidence of it. And so he destroyed you see, as Jesus had been walking in the temple, and as we're going to see coming uh, very soon, Jesus is prophesying what is going to happen here. The very center of their sacrificial system for the Jews, the very center of all their religious worship, the priesthood, the Sanhedrin, the very heart of Judaism, all of this is represented and wrapped up in the temple. And though Jesus had just cleansed it that same week, come AD 70, it would be completely destroyed. Not one stone would be left upon another. Jerusalem would be ransacked. And what would happen to the vineyard of God? It would be handed over to the Gentiles. Jesus was prophesying what was about to take place. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43, this is Matthew's account of this same parable. And he includes 
a little piece of information. I want to read this to you from Matthew 21, 43. Jesus said this, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The kingdom has been taken from you and it's been given to another. The vineyard has been destroyed and someone else is going to inherit it. Very strong language. But notice the owner, what did he do after he rented the vineyard out? He said he went on a journey, didn't he? You know, when God created this earth, he didn't leave, he didn't become uninvolved, but he wasn't here in a physical presence. He wasn't walking around in a bodily form day in and day out, and you could see God there. He was kind of an absentee owner, if you will. He was involved, but he wasn't walking in the flesh amongst us. Until when? Until there in a little town called Bethlehem, right? Christ was born of that virgin Mary, and God became man. And God dwelt among us. The son showed up into his rightful inheritance. The place that belonged to him. And so it says in verse number two, and at the harvest time, at the time, at the season, Christ came at just the right time, didn't he? in just the right season that God had established. And remember what Jesus had just done? He had come to do the same thing that those slaves had done, the same thing the son, the story had done. They come to inspect the fruit, didn't they? To come to see what had been produced. Remember as Jesus walked around the temple and looked at what was going on? There was a fruit inspection taking place. And they were found lacking. They hadn't produced. God had given them everything. As his people, he had cared for his people, loved for his people, delivered his people, sent prophets to his people. And he comes to inspect and there's no fruit. So who are these vine growers then in this story? Well, obviously, the religious leaders understood that was them. Because verse 12 tells us they were seeking to seize him and yet they feared the crowd for they understood he spoke the parable against them. If Israel was to be the vineyard, then their leaders were the vine growers. They were the caretakers entrusted with this group of people to care for them, to teach them, to lead them, to instill that desire in them to follow after their Lord. And yet, these religious leaders had failed by leading the people astray. They had failed by seeking their own positions of authority, Their own prominence, their own glory, their own followings, their own worship or adoration. They were heaping it up on themselves. They wanted for themselves what belonged to Christ. That's why they wanted to kill him. That's why they wanted him out of the way. He was kind of taking the limelight. He was taking their prominence. He was taking their profit. He'd upset their apple cart. And they wanted to destroy him. They had been failures as leaders of God's people. And there was going to be a reckoning for it. 
Well, who were the slaves or the servants that were sent? These were the prophets of old. Time and time again, had God not sent prophets to his people to tell them his way, to call them to repentance. And yet, what did they do to those prophets? They beat them. They wounded them. They killed them. Elliot, in his commentary, notes that this language paints the general treatment of the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. There were some of the most obvious instances. He says that the language of our Lord in this passage implies that the prophets, as a class, had no light or easy task and were called upon one by one to suffer persecution for the faithful exercise of their office. It wasn't an easy job to be a prophet, was it? They knew they were going to face some consequences when they spoke for the Lord. Now see if you can figure this part of the parable out. Who do you think the son is? Well, that would be Jesus Christ, wouldn't it? He's the son who came. After all the prophets came the son, God himself, his own presence. He was called... In our passage, look at verse 6. It says he had one more, a beloved son. Do you remember what the father said of the son, both at his baptism and his transfiguration? In both of those instances, God the Father calls him his beloved son. This is who Christ is referencing. It's himself. He is the one who came with all authority. And what were these religious leaders doing at that very moment? Plotting to kill him, weren't they? They were plotting to kill him. This was revelation. Jesus is showing what's going on in their heart and what they're intending to do and what's about to take place. It's why they knew that this was all about them. They were ready to put him to death. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, it tells us that they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And this is exactly what would happen to Christ. He was taken outside of the gates of Jerusalem, outside the walls, and put on a cross, crucified. He died outside the gates, just like the son thrown out of the vineyard and killed. It's exactly what happened to him. And Jesus, in verse number 10 then kind of turns this story from the vineyard to now a building. But this building really explains the parable of the vineyard. Look at what he says in verse 10. Have you not even read this scripture? Because you've read the Psalms, you should know. The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus said, I am that stone which you, the builders, rejected. And yet the stone which you rejected, it's now become the chief cornerstone. You see, when you were building a building at that time, to set the cornerstone, this was the most important foundational piece of the entire structure. If you don't get this right, the structure won't be right. Now, some of you guys who build a little bit might understand this. If if you maybe just throw up a shabby pole barn or something, it all seems fine and good. But if you don't take time to square that building up first, you may think it doesn't really matter. I got it closed. It's no big deal. But here's what happens when you don't square the building first. As you continue to to build on this building, you begin to find your measurements don't work out on anything. 
And nothing is the same. And every cut has to be different. Every piece is different. And then you get to putting the roof on. Maybe you're putting metal on that roof. And then you find it begins to run sideways and they begin to overlap and nothing lines up. And if you'd just taken the time in the beginning to square the building, how much easier everything else would have gone, right? I've been there and done that. Maybe you haven't. Well, if you're going to use this cornerstone, this large stone as the centerpiece of what you're about to build off of, it's very important that that stone be perfect, straight, square, symmetrical. You need it to be right. If it's not, you cast it aside, get another one till you find one that's right because you know it's going to be the intersection of two different walls and it has to be right or the walls are going to go off course. This is not going to be a square building. Jesus says, I'm that stone that you rejected. I'm the one you cast aside. But God says, this is the stone that's perfect. And this is the stone that's going to be the centerpiece of my work, of everything that I'm doing, of everything that I'm building. This is the chief corner, Christ. He said, this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He was the one rejected by so many But for those who didn't, he was marvelous. They saw the work of God. Listen, there's so many in our world today rejecting Christ. He's an anathema to them. They don't want anything to do with him. He's disgraceful to them. To those of us who know him, he's precious, isn't he? He's precious. He's everything. It was God's purpose and plan in all that was taking place you know as bad as this whole circumstance looks you understand God was never for once out of control never once did we move outside of God's plan never once did God cease to be sovereign never once did God said oops I better go back to the drawing board figure out something different because it didn't work out like I was thinking it would No, this came about from the Lord and it was marvelous in our eyes. So that's the parable, right? And that's what it means. But who is it for? Who needs this parable today? I'm going to give you three things and we're going to wrap up with this. Here's the three people who need this parable. If this is you, this parable is for you. If you have an outward form of religion, this parable is for you. An outward form of religion. You see, that's exactly what Israel had. They had religion. They had a form. They had all the structure. Had all the sacrifices. All the people in place. These religious leaders had a form. <coughs> but they were missing something. Second Timothy chapter 3. I want you to turn there real quick with me. Second Timothy chapter 3. Notice what Timothy tells us about these people with an outward form of religion. He says in verse 1, But know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now look at this in verse 5. 
holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. (laughs) You see, they have this religion, they have this form of godliness, they wear a label, but they've denied its power. It's obvious because look at how they live. Notice what he says in verse 5. Keep away from such men as these. Keep away from them. For among them are those who enter into households, take captive weak women weighed down with sins, being led on by various desires, always learning and never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth. They're so smart, yet so dumb. (laughs) They had this form. They wear the label. The fruit's not there. The evidence is not there. They haven't experienced the power. There are many who attend church and wear a label but have no fruit in their lives. It's not leading them into action. Hearers, not doers that Jesus refers to. It's all a facade. For many, religion just becomes a false comfort, doesn't it? It's like, I'm okay because at least I go to church. Right? I'm in a Sunday school class or I listen to preaching or I participate in this or I participate in that. And they feel like everything's okay because I've got this religion. Do not find comfort in having a form of religion. Instead, find transformation in Christ that leads to life that brings glory to God. If you have an outward form of religion, this parable is for you. Secondly, if you are a religious leader, this parable is for you. If you're a religious leader. Now, some of you sitting here this morning might say, that's not me. I'm not in a place of leadership. Some of you might be. But many who will hear this are people who are in places of leadership. In churches everywhere. James 3.1 tells us, do not... Many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. You see, there is a high standard for those who are entrusted with the word of God and with the people of God. He says there's a stricter judgment for you. Just this week, we had a local church show a movie for their family night to children, families alike. It was a Disney movie. And in this movie, it depicts two young girls who are supposedly in a lesbian relationship and they kiss in the movie. This is a church showing this to their children, families. Private message to the pastor, the senior pastor, asked if he was aware this was there, if this was intentional. I got no response. None. This is the same church who is now advertising that they're going to be teaching the gospel according to Pixar. You know, the entertainment company? They're going to spend about five weeks, I think, taking Pixar characters to talk about the gospel from the Pixar characters. You know, there were actually four very good gospels written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Tells us all we need to know about our Savior Jesus Christ. I'm telling you that to understand this is where we're at today. And our leaders are chief in this trespass. And they will be called into account for such. Pastors today are nothing more than hirelings. 
just like those who are keeping the vineyard, just like those who are supposed to be watching the sheep and paid to do so. They're getting paid to do their job. They're getting paid to be a pastor. And so what do they do? They appease the sheep so that they come around and keep paying their salaries, their hirelings. And so they do trendy little things like these tricks of showing movies and stuff to bring people in. All the while they're leading people astray. And here we are under the judgment of God. I would say if you're listening to this message and you're a religious leader, I'm asking, would you repent today? Thirdly and finally, you know that this parable is for you if you have an outward form of religion, if you are a religious leader, or if you have rejected Christ. If you have rejected Christ. You see, he tells us there in Mark chapter 12, In verse 10, that he is that stone which the builders rejected. Christ is the only foundation for your faith and life. There is no other way. Are you rejecting him still? If you're rejecting him still, why not come to him today? You know, some are going to reject him and some are going to destroy his messengers but we keep preaching the truth. Watch the video from that Pride event this weekend. One particularly vile person, I won't go into details about some of his stuff that he's been posting on social media, but he was walking around in the Pride event and somebody, I don't know who they were, uh, started preaching or came through and was preaching and, and you could hear it on the video and they they threw out some scriptures, I think from Proverbs and And as they were preaching, this guy on the video uses language I'm not going to use today. But in essence, he says, I hate them. I hate them. He's talking about those people who are preaching the truth. He hates them. See, he's become hardened. He's rejected it. And they will become vile and even violent toward those who preach the truth. Listen, if you know him, then you represent him. Like those prophets of old who spoke, endangered their very lives to preach the truth. Just like those slaves in our story. You may be harassed. You may be assaulted. You may be killed for the cause of Christ. But as Matthew Henry said, may we be willing to be despised and hated for his sake. The thought of the prophets of old should haunt us when we make excuses for our silence in the face of evil. Be it our sanctimonious rejection of confrontation or bold preaching for the idea that we should just be nice. Or be it our remaining in a congregation for social reasons when the church will not stand for truth or righteousness. If that's the case for you, get out of there and join up with true believers who are uncompromising. Get out of those social settings. Perhaps this morning you're like the chief priests, scribes, elders, and you realize today that this parable is for you. Then I plead with you today, cling to Christ. 
don't turn away. Don't harden your heart. Understand the glorious work of God in Christ that's made available for you. Confess your outward form of religion today. Repent today, church leaders, for your failure in caring for the souls of the flock of God. Your failure to be faithful to the truth of His Word and your preaching and practice. Trust in Christ today as a sacrifice for your sin and the cornerstone of your life. This parable is for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.